Hello and welcome back to A Life Extraordinary. I'm your show host, Roberto. I'm a photographer, videographer, um, influencer, social media dude, um, content creator. Uh, I've worn many hats over the years. And, uh, and this is why um, I'm coming to you now, podcasting to you, because I do know a fair bit about a few different things. But what I know the most is that I don't know everything. And, um, but I'm always learning. And I think that's what people enjoy about listening in sometimes with, with me and seeing, uh, seeing what's new and what they can learn from, from our wacky meanderings that we've done all over the world. Indeed, I'm a kayaker, rock climber, backcountry skier, skier. I've been a snowboarder, um, mountain biker, e-biker, kite surfer, scuba diver, photographer, drone pilot, videographer, sailor, and uh, yeah, I've done a few things. Canoe tripper, kayak camper, sea kayaker, <laughs> and the list goes on and on. But tonight, tonight I want to talk to you about wilderness survival tips. You know, I've been in places all over the world where it can get a little bit sketchy, yes, um, quite sketchy, actually. And, uh, and I've been in plenty of scenarios where I wondered if I would make it out. But that being said, I do tend to be redundant when it comes to safety in certain ways. And particularly when I'm going beyond what I perceive to be my limits. So staying alive in the wild is most definitely not the most incredibly difficult thing to do particularly if you're prepared. But if you're not prepared, then things can go wrong pretty darn quickly. You know, there's a few very basic tips to begin with. And that's number one, to let people know where you are going um, and when you intend to be out. Because if you're going alone, or even if you're going as a couple, or even if you're going as a family, if nobody knows where you are, then when you haven't come back at a certain time, then nobody will be wondering. And those extra hours, uh, particularly when it's in the wilderness, can mean the difference between uh, life and death. Indeed, I, I believe it was uh, in the Grand Canyon. I might be wrong, but there was this young family. Uh, the father seemed to be an experienced hiker, and they had a baby with them, and, uh, and the ladies as well seemed to be an experienced hiker, and they got caught out with far too little water on them for the extreme heat that, uh, that does happen there. And, uh, and they died. So, so there's things that you wouldn't imagine or scenarios where you'd be like, well, I'm just going for a jaunt. And if that jaunt suddenly becomes a snowstorm or a, uh, a heat wave or a landslide or, uh, or simply running out of food or getting disoriented, um, then everything changes very quickly because many people, don't bring enough food when they go outdoors. Many people don't bring enough gear and they often simply aren't prepared enough. And, and that's too bad because, um, because there's just so many things that you could do that would make your life much more likely to survive. So number one, bring lots of water. Always bring water. Whether you think you're going to need it or you don't think you're going to need it, bring it. Because, uh, in many scenarios, um, 
particularly during heat waves or you're on tropical destinations, uh, the quickest way to end up getting dehydrated is simply because you didn't bring enough damn water. So bring extra water always and bring a rain jacket and bring uh, a pair of rain pants because so many scenarios go very, very wrong simply because you don't have the gear required to survive. Now, I've been in, in my own hairy scenarios and I'll jump on with um, being in a sea kayak and I'm wearing a full dry suit. And that means that it's like a, uh, imagine a Gore-Tex that goes head to toe and it's got neoprene gaskets around the neck and the wrists. And I'm in very big waves and very cold water. Um, and I'm crossing Georgian Bay and it isn't the coldest of water compared to perhaps Alaska, but it is pretty frigid and the waves get bigger and bigger and they're sloshing over my boat. And as much as I do have a dry suit, because I only have a nice mid-layer base layer underneath, if I'm more than 20, 30, 40 minutes in the water with that dry suit in this scenario, then I would become hypothermic. And, you know, in that scenario, then it's, it could, things can go very wrong and I'm very well prepared. And one of the things I do, because aware that if I haven't been able to get back into my boat in time in one of these, uh, big wave tips where it's called a wet exit, where you fall out of your kayak. Um, and if I can't get back in time, then a choice has to be made. And the choice is, do I continue trying to get back into my boat or do I try and swim to the nearest shoreline? Because I know I have enough energy that will either get me into my boat and then if I fail and that energy and heat that I was retaining is gone, then au revoir mon ami, c'est la fin de la vie and I'm done. If I misjudge the distance, which is easy to do when you're far away from uh, from shoreline, if I misjudge the distance and I start swimming, even with my dry suit, 30 or 40 minutes later, it, perhaps if I'm in the ocean and there's current, but particularly like if I'm, I'm thinking more in the scenario I've, I've been in with big lakes, then uh, you have only a limited amount of time to get to shore. And it's not only the time that you have to get to shore that's the most important, but it's the time that you are on shore because often you get your most chilled in the final moments when you've just gotten to shore and you're like, I spent all the energy possible, but then you can't get your body warm. And there's a few stages that you start to go through and you start to become hypothermic. And then if you don't uh, change that or remedy that very quickly, um, then you quickly use lose the ability, for example, to use your fingers. And in my scenario, there are a few times where I've gotten to shore and I've been very chilled and I really have to start a fire as fast as I can. And so your, your fingers, if you, particularly if you didn't have them well covered, which I often don't, to be honest, because I don't... I rarely do capsize or anything like that. It rarely tends to happen. But in that scenario, I didn't have gloves. And so my hands were starting to gnarl. And they become like kind of like tree trunk roots where you can see them. You've got full wit in your mind, but your fingers won't move. And they feel like stumps that you're trying to, to do something with. And so anything that's a fine motor skill, like cutting up the tinder and, and, and starting a fire, is very difficult. And it's in that time that if you don't get the fire going quickly enough that you start your, my body started to like shiver, 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 shiver. And, and the body shivering is a reaction of your body of trying to heat itself up by creating these muscle spasms. Um, but then if you don't get it lit in time, then, uh, then you become pretty much immobile and then hypothermic and then it could be just very, very bad. And it brings to mind a story. In my case, I've always gotten my fire lit. 
Uh, I've learned my terrible lesson the hard way by uh, always having a dry bag on the deck of my canoe or my kayak. And in a dry bag, basically what these bags are is they're roll-up bags that uh, your stuff doesn't get wet. And, um, and this is a fantastic emergency bag to use because you grab that if you do have to swim to shore and inside you put your most essential things like a lighter and uh, some tinder to start a fire, uh, a freeze-dried easy-to-eat meal or energy bars, um, the emergency beacon, which it should be either in there or in your life jacket. Um, and I always stuff a down jacket. And I, the down, the poof down jackets that I talk about are like the 600 fill ones, but they compress really, really, really small. And this is my key in so many cold water or cold weather related scenarios that if I start to feel my body just giving up in regards to, uh, producing the, the heat that I need to be comfortable, then I whip on this big down jacket. And I know in advance because I've learned over many years of expeditions that um, don't wait to be shivering and freezing when you start to feel that you're already getting cold. Whip out the down jacket, put it over yourself, take out an emergency blanket if need be, wrap yourself in that, and retain your heat and build that up and get comfortable very quickly. And uh, and there you go. So sea kayaking, wilderness survival tip, always have your emergency dry bag. Always be very calculated on uh, as much as you can in a panicky scenario of what is the best situation Um if I fail trying to get into my kayak, um, then then I've lost time that might be too valuable versus trying to swim to shore. Or if the shore is simply too far, then to simply know that that's not an option and that you have to succeed in getting back into your kayak. You know, there's the very, very well-known Into the Wild with Chris McCandles. And it was an inspiring story to me. I really enjoyed uh, reading it and I got deep into it because it's a book that uh, and a story, really, that lends itself to, to lots of tangents in my life of, of going out into wilderness and really wanting to feel, feel alive by feeling discomfort and by feeling, um, that I'm the one that really has to make it through, uh, survival situations because you are. And then when you are in the wilderness, it is all up to you. And, uh, and, and it really clears the mind because mundane problems like paying your bills back home really don't mean much when you're out in the bush and you're like, well, if I don't get from this kayak that just capsized to shore fast enough, then that is the end of my story. Uh, and there it ends. And I've been in many, many situations like that. And I find that any time that I was getting down or, or whatnot, just go out into the wild, immerse yourself in adventure and particularly in pushing your limits, because it's by pushing these limits that you realize that so many things that you thought important simply just are not right. Um, a very fundamental key to still being alive and being able to do this podcast is, is the simple fact of maintaining uh, a level of uh, understanding in your scenario where you do not panic because the moment panic begins and it overwhelms you, then uh, you lose precious time in doing the things required to keep you alive. And, and I've noticed that in, in really tough scenarios, it's, I find that I bloom. <laughs> it's when I'm like, okay, this canoe has tipped in the river and it's pushing against my body. And if I don't move it quickly enough, it's going to break my legs. And in those, I find that in those moments, it's when I most just feel the most alive because I, I quickly 
move the canoe in a certain way so that it doesn't break my legs, grab the dry bag that's floating away that happens to be the one that has uh, the emergency bag or, or the car keys, which has happened to us both scenarios. And, uh, and, and superhuman strength. Obviously, this, this happens when you're in adrenaline-filled moments and you'd be baffled at how strong your body can suddenly be in situations of emergency. Um, but keeping your cool, you know, is, is fundamental. I've been, uh, with people that panic about like, Oh my God, we're lost. We're lost. Where are we going to go? What are we going to do? And, and really you're just like, okay, relax. You know, yeah, we're lost, but we're still here. We can pitch the tent. We can see if we can figure it out on the GPS and the maps and, and et cetera, et cetera. So, so there's, Keeping your cool in a survival situation is fundamental. Um, I already chatted to you a little bit about what you should have in your emergency bag, but I like to have a dry bag with a beacon, medical kit, freeze-dried foods. In your medical kit, always have Advil, Tylenol, um, bandages, uh, and, and everything you don't think you would need because I think the medical kit is one of those things that it's that what you have in there is better to to have and not need and need and not have. And I think some people have said that about guns and condoms, but in a relation to a medical kit, I think it's even more important. Now, we often get questions when we're in, when, and I'm in Northern Canada or in the backcountry uh, wilderness of Northern United States um, or Northwest Territories or, or BC or Alberta, where we have lots of wildlife and lots of bears. And um, particularly here, even here where I live in Worcester, we've got like 350 local bears just within the boundaries of our 10,000 local community. So interaction with bears is, is quite frequent for us. But when you're in the wild, it's very different than seeing them from your car or, or from walking on a hike and you see them in a the distance because when you're on a backcountry adventure, it's whatever happens is there up to you afterwards, meaning the consequences of any event there is, is very different than if you're seeing them from a car and, and really nothing happens. So a key factor that you must always remember is never bring any food into your tent. And we were religious about this, and we have always been religious about this because the the one spot where I would absolutely not enjoy having a bear clamp its claw around me or its its jaw around me, I meant to say, is when I'm in my tent because I mean it's the worst position where you could try and scare a bear away. And I've had lots of bears around uh, before, and we've scared them away with rocks, bear bangs. Um, haven't had to use bear spray on a charge or anything, but we have been in a scenario where the guide we were with, an Inuit guide in Northern Canada, was shooting live rounds around the bear. And at the end of the day, it was a rock that he lobbed high up over his shoulder um, that plunked on the, on the bear that made that bear go away. But very important, no food in the tent. Because bears can smell up to 25, 30 kilometers away, and, uh, and they can run up to 40, 50 kilometers an hour, which means... They could get to you quite quickly, and uh, this is something that you always have to be aware about, particularly if you've been cooking that night, which you tend to cook on most nights that you're on an adventure, and therefore the scents are all around. So, so if you can, make sure that you hang the, the food in a dry bag in a tree, and if not, that it's in a hard compartment of your kayak, albeit your kayak could be shredded to bits depending on how tenacious the bear was. But, uh, but I do that oftentimes because the kayak compartments are airtight. And so 
limited amount of scent would, would escape them, right? Um, but now that I have kids, it's a lot harder to to make sure that there's nothing in the tent uh, that smells because uh, I have three under six, and with the first one, it was oh no, it's the diapers that are scented. Okay, we don't we, we make sure we take diapers that are not scented, and we're great about yeah okay, no toothpaste, no. Nothing sweet like that, no creams, uh, no face creams, nothing in the tent like that. Everything gets stored in the dry bag that's with the food um, or scented and far away from us. And um, But with the children now, particularly as toddlers, sometimes we wake up on a camping trip and Catalina just reaches into her pocket and pulls out a chocolate bar. And, and I, I had looked through her jacket the night before to make sure that there was nothing in it. And somehow by morning there was... And it, it's not just once, but a few times that this has happened. So you try and mitigate things. And obviously with a sigh of relief afterwards, when nothing uh, did happen is great. And with bears, yes, I do pee a perimeter around the camp. So, so it, it's, we will tend to, just like a dog marks its territory, um, make a circumference, circular area when we go to take a pee, uh, when we're in wild, wild wilderness, right? Not not so much when it's like front country camping or anything like that, but back country, um, because uh, they are obviously very keen on scent of smell and territory, and uh, and this keeps them away. I also the the dry bag that has all the food and all the scent and stuff. I'll tend to put it downwind from us, right? So that the wind's coming, let's say from above us, it passes through our camp. It grabs the smell of the bag and then it continues onwards, which would mean that the bear that would be smelling it and coming towards us would hit the dry bag before it would hit our camp. I'm not sure if you get that. And if you were, if I was to put it upwind from me, the food, then obviously the food, in order for the bear to get to that bag of food, he would go through our camp. So that's just a, a few easy tips. Obviously, wind can change directions at night. Um, we do try and choose a good 50, 60 meters away from the tent uh, to, to leave the, the bag of food. And um, and we've learned that, you know, it is, you know, another tip that you should always have is, is an emergency beacon. Because sure, in a scenario like the kayaking one where we fall in the water or I fall in the water and there's I would require somebody to be there almost instantaneously or within 30 minutes to rescue me. Most of the places that we go into the wild wilderness in the back country, there is nobody there to rescue. And if by the time the emergency beacon signal gets to my family who alerts the, the coast guard or whoever it may be that's required in that scenario, then likely too much time would have passed before saving me from that water scenario. But if I was in camp and I hit my, by a mistake, the axe uh, bounced off in the wrong way and cut my leg and I was able to bandage it up uh, very well to stop the bleeding, then, and it, and it's still a few hours before a float plane can get in or, or whatever uh, helicopter to, to, to get the rescue done, then in that scenario, obviously, absolutely incredible to have that beacon because you shall remember the story of Aaron Ratson, Ratson, um, who cut off his hand when he was in the, I think he was in Utah and he was in a Canyon and he had, he had a boulder fell and crushed his hand. 
And he was there for 172 hours at the end of the day. But but during the, the many hours, he, he tried to scrape around his hand and everything, but it was just absolutely pinned there. And if he had had an emergency beacon and pressed a little button, then he would still have five more digits to count on his fingers. <laughs> so, but what he had to do was he had to take a, like, it is basically like a pen knife and, and saw off, uh, basically amputate his hand in order to get it out. And obviously, uh, this became a very big movie. I think it was called 172 hours, um, where he, in order, then he had to hike down, I think it was five kilometers or so before he was found by a family that was able to get him out. And they got him to emergency rescue in the hospital and all that just in time because he was bleeding to death in a little bit longer and he would have not been with us today. And instead he's become quite famous for what happened and he does have uh, a clamp as a hand, but um, I think he would have preferred to tell the story of, uh, of him having pressed the emergency bucket buttons and getting, getting rescued. So an emergency beacon, definitely a key item for when you're really pushing your limits in the back country. Um, and even when you're not, it's something good to have because uh, at the beginning when, and I guess when people, I guess it still applies, when people are learning to go into the backcountry, it's an item that you do want to have because that's when ten things can tend to go mostly wrong. It's when you just don't know how to do everything. Uh, there's a couple brands you can get to their spot emergency beacons um, and Delorme inReach. I have a Delorme inReach and it's two-way satellite communication. It's about 49 bucks Canadian a month. And, uh, but hey, what's your life worth when, uh, when all it takes is a little device that technology invented that means that you could get in touch whenever you needed. I'm, um, some years ago, my parents would worry very, very, very much about uh, the adventures that I would go on to because oftentimes I would go into the backcountry alone and on much longer trips. And, uh, and so they got me a satellite phone, but at the time it was like, hundred dollars to make a call or something ridiculous like that. And on top of that, the phone was a $2,000 phone. So it's quite the leaps and bounds in technology to have this gadget that although you are looking to disconnect while you go into the wilderness, it is very good, particularly if you're pushing any limits that you have your device, uh, because all it takes is pushing a button and people know where you are and what to do. Um, we've had a few scenarios um, in Manicouagan, the Eye of Quebec, where where we had to rub my friend's feet after a big sea kayaking uh, section that we had just paddled across in, in very cold water and very cold temperature. And, and his feet were blue, 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 um, numb. So, uh, so I popped him into the tent, and uh, it was the only time that I broke my cardinal rule of not cooking in the tent or not doing anything food related in the tent because in order to keep my friend alive and happy, I thought it would be best to stuff him with some burgers. And it was, his body was losing so much energy um, from what he had just gone through that, uh, that getting him topped up with some food was really, really what, uh, what got him feeling uh, much better. I wanted to give you a few other tips because um one of the things that I tend to use uh, the most and people that know me well know it's like that I'm always in Merino wool and Merino wool has uh, properties that are uh, 
you know, antibacterial and warm when wet. And this one is, this is a key one in keeping you alive in the wilderness is that it's very different. Uh, your body doesn't lose the same amount of heat by any means if you're wearing cotton, if you're wearing merino versus wearing cotton. If you're wearing cotton, then all your body heat is lost and it becomes quite miserable. And it only takes one proper misadventure of wearing cotton socks or a cotton t-shirt or cotton pants for you to truly understand the magic of merino. Yes, it's expensive, but uh, there is nothing like natural fibers in, in what this does. And so socks, having merino wool socks on any of these backcountry trips, key, key, um, base layers as well. And of course, being that most of our heat is lost through our head and our hands, um, a toque and gloves. But my, glove, my gloves aren't merino, but that's often, that's probably why sometimes they actually are cold. Um, you know, a few different things on uh, on prevention. You know, it's it's really like important to to be drinking lots of fluids when you're dehydrated because uh, obviously this can can have a detrimental effect uh, on your body if you're not um, and e- eating high calorie foods and drinks as regularly. You know, these are all points that basically I'm saying that uh, is almost repeating. I was just saying that I made burgers in the tent, that that was the best way. Now, a lot of people like to get the calorie intake when you really need it and you're very cold. A lot of people assume that if you're on a beach or in a tropical destination, that uh, there's no danger of hypothermia. But indeed, just being in the water uh, long enough in the ocean, and even if it's in the Caribbean, will bring your body temperature low enough that you you will become uh, hypothermic as well. And, uh, and we've done some sea kayak expeditions around Turks and Caicos Islands, and, and you quickly realize that, the, uh, that you could get chilled quite, quite easily, even though it's a tropical destination and the heat was blasting during the day. So I keep my, my down jacket on a tropical trip. You know, it's people when they see me pack, they're like, what, are you really taking a down jacket to Turks and Caicos? I'm like, yeah, because when we're on an expedition, it's the best way to warm up our body. And one thing that I hadn't chatted about is, is keeping uh, your children alive during these wilderness trips as well is kind of key. And, and I jumped to that tangent because the down jacket that now I used to bring only for myself really has become a jacket that I always bring more so because of the children now because I know that if ever they fall in the water, which they do plenty, or, uh, or get chilled, or they're just tired because it's been a big expedition day, then I just wrap them in my down jacket and it cozies, cozies them up quite quickly to keep them warm. And a wilderness tip with children is going to their pace, you know, as much as people try and cram in as many things as they can or distance as they can with their with their children over a weekend. Um, if you're doing a proper trek with 25 kilometers or 15 kilometers and I take up, you know, with our, we have a kids camp as well. And we take up eight year old kids on 15 kilometer treks. And the parents are like, Oh my God, I had no idea that my child could actually hike 15 kilometers. And well, yes, but you never gave them the opportunity to. And that's why you sent them to our camp though. Right. And, um, but, but being aware of trying to go to their pace is very important because we always have children that are obviously lagging behind the group. And these ones, you don't want to prod them to the point where they're like, oh my God, I'm done. And I'm just going to sit down in the middle of the trail and cry. Um, but you want to still be able to continue to motivate them without getting them to that point. And I think that's one of the tips with, with any children, if you're in the wilderness, is don't push them too hard because uh, it might spring back on you in not the nicest of ways. Um, a great tent you know, I've always said it, 
when the shit hit the fan or things were just going to go really badly, as long as I had, as we have our tent, um, it's home, it's shelter, it's warmth, it's jump into your sleeping bag, and uh, it could be pouring rain outside, and I could still set up the tent. And it's sure the tent has water on the inside and the outside and everywhere, but you're you'll be dry in your sleeping bag on your mattress. And we've been in plenty of scenarios where the snow was just too thick or we didn't make the distance on our backcountry ski trip that we thought we would. And uh, Lady and I will look at each other and say, you know what? I think it's time to pitch the tent and because we're stressed and it's late and we're exhausted. And when you try and push too hard on any expedition or any backcountry adventure and you're already exhausted, it's when accidents tend to happen. So very important, you know, to to make sure that when you go out on uh, on your adventures that you have shelter just in case. And I know a lot of people do day hikes, um, particularly like up here in this Whistler area where I live and, and, and all over the United States as well. But even on a day hike, things can go very wrong if you're not prepared. So have the, the, the very minimal essentials of like some extra snacks, a headlamp. You know, so many people on a day hike are thinking, oh, yeah, you know, it's five hours, six hours. I'll be there and back before night settles in. But it's very different trying to get back on the trail if for whatever reason you were delayed or it took you much longer than you expected when you're trying to hike a trail in pitch blackness, right? And that is a difficult thing. Or by the light of your phone, which, by the way, you need the battery to uh, just in case you need to reach out to someone. Um, And on that battery note... Um, most people that know me as well will know that most places I travel to, whether it's going on the plane or in the backcountry, I always have plenty of backup power to charge my phone, particularly or in the emergency beacon, um, because those are things that suddenly become very dangerous. If, for example, you had cut your, you fell off of uh, a, a ledge while you were trekking, you broke your ankle. Um, and yet you're communicating with, uh, rescue teams and those rescue teams are guiding on what to do and, and how to wrap your ankle and maybe how to stop whatever bleeding. And so the battery diminishes quite quickly there in those scenarios. So, but if you've got a power source, even if it's a small power pack that gives one X or two X phone charges, um, that could be, uh, life saving, life saving battery power, um, Literally, no pun intended on that one. Um, and there's lots of different uh, wilderness trips as well, uh, tips as well that I, that I could keep going on and on about. Um, but I think that's a few for tonight that should keep you alive on your next adventure. And uh, if you're ever wondering on uh, where to find more about our trips and travels and all that jazz, well, just head over to The Expeditioners on Instagram or Expeds Roberto, and there you shall see that we take our little children to some of the mo- most remote places and uh, and ourselves as well. Uh, next week, on or this week, coming up on Wednesday, I leave to Iceland. Uh, and while I'll be guiding for the first 10 days of the trip, after that, I have a week to explore and search for some type 2 fun of perhaps jumping in some waterfalls with a dry suit, of course, or doing things that push my own limits. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you tomorrow. But uh, it won't be from Whistler. Well, yes, still tomorrow will be from Whistler. But uh, the next three weeks coming up as of Wednesday, 
I'll be chatting to you from Iceland, the land of fire and ice.